Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Ruha Benjamin, associate professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, where she studies the social dimensions of science, technology, and medicine. She's also the founder of the Just Data Lab, which brings together activists, artists, educators, and researchers to develop humanistic approaches that rethink and retool data for justice. Benjamin is the author of People Science, Bodies and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier, and Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. She's also the editor of Captivating Technology, Race, Carceral Technoscience, and Liberatory Imagination in Everyday Life. Benjamin gave a talk titled Beyond Buzzwords, Reimagining the Default Settings of Technology and Society on February 4th, 2020, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2019-2020 Crestman Lecturer. Her talk was part of the Convergence, Intersections Between the Sciences and Humanities series. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. First, let's um, start with your background. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be interested in the social dimensions of science and technology. Um, I think it started in undergrad, actually. I went to Spelman College, um, and for my honors thesis, I studied um, the way that obstetricians um, approach childbirth, the various, not just technologies, but values and dynamics that go into that, and compared it with black midwives in the South. And so it was a kind of a comparative approach around the way that these two professional groups approach one uh, phase of life, right? And in that, the kind of abiding questions of power, of knowledge, of culture, um, have carried through the rest of my work in thinking about um, whose knowledge and practices are authoritative and go unquestioned. And so I think anytime uh, it seems as though we're not supposed to question something, it makes me want to question it even more. And so I carry that over into a number of other projects since undergrad. So why is it that science, technology, and data are generally viewed as neutral and objective? I think there's a number of reasons, one of which there's a concerted effort to cast these practices as apolitical and asocial. And so it, I don't think it's by happenstance, but that kind of veneer of neutrality is actively produced by both practitioners, but a broader kind of consensus that these things are removed from human activity and human values and, and biases. And so I think the, 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 at different phases in history, the dynamics of why you know, a particular science or technology gains that, um, that allure of objectivity varies, um, but it, it's, it's part of the authority of these projects that they seem somehow to have risen above mere human interaction and, and bias. So you're already beginning to get to the answer to my next question. Why do humanists and social sciences need to work in the tech industry? Why do they need us over there? Uh, you know, I think both they need us, but I also think it's important for us to produce knowledge and analyses that are not simply within the fold of these industries, mm -hmm, to become mm -hmm. kind of maid servants uh, to the project that has been defined by others. So I think that there's a way also for our fields to uh, gain a kind of autonomy in our, uh, in our understanding of these practices. But nevertheless, there, there's a need if 
to the extent that science and technology are human endeavors, they have ripple effects in every area of our lives. The more that they are informed by long-standing um, you know, knowledge bases that have studied um, inequality, have studied culture, have studied difference, that can inform how we develop, why we develop these things, I think the better integrated they will be in our, in our social order, in our social life, for good or, or bad. Mm. So I, I want to ask you some questions about the book, the most sure. recent book. So the title is Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Gym Code. Yeah. So will you parse the two parts of that? Yeah, and I'm always interested, too, in, in the meanings that people bring to, especially mm -hmm. the first mm -hmm. part, race mm -hmm. after technology. Mm -hmm. And so race in the title both has to do with a racial project, racism, white supremacy, but also race as a chasing after technology and thinking about the speed at which we pursue technological development and what then gets sacrificed in the process. And so one of the the lines were Black History Month thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. that we have guided missiles and misguided men. And so that asymmetry between our technological prowess and our moral social imagination and compass is, has been out of whack you know, long before MLK said those words and certainly is true today and extends beyond autonomous weapons in, in the context of the quote to uh, sort of automated systems more broadly. And so race after technology is thinking about the way that that pursuit, high speed pursuit of technology also has deeply racialized implications for what groups do, are doing the designing and which groups bear the burden of this high speed pursuit. How a kind of social consciousness often falls to the wayside. Um, when it comes to developing automated decision systems as one example. Then abolitionist tools for the new Jim Code is trying to articulate what an alternative to this high-speed pursuit looks like, what an alternative to the key concept which we can talk about, about the new Jim Code, um, trying to build into the framing of the book an eye towards people that have already been and can begin to develop alternative ways of engaging with technology that have a more liberatory agenda, not one that simply recasts our, our social inequalities and embed them into these technologies. Um, when I was working on, a, on a, a, a different project related to this, one of the more senior members of the, the team, one of the contributors to that book, um, wrote me and said, you know, in the way that we are titling this other project, we're giving, we're, we're ceding all of the intellectual ground to naming the problem that mm -hmm. we want to address. And we're not giving enough sort of intellectual investment to naming the world that we want, to mm -hmm. naming what the alternatives are. Um, I think we do that simply in the way that we title things, but also in the way that we carve up, let's say, a book. And mm -hmm. we often tag on to the end a kind of you know alternatives these are the policy implications these are the things that we could do differently rather than try to integrate what um what would be a, the good life uh you know in, in the in the project as a whole and so that subtitle is my attempt to try to name tools that aren't reinforcing oppression that are abolitionist in kind so tell us how you define the new jim code absolutely 
And so the new Jim Code, the concept is a riff off of a phrase uh, uh, by Michelle Alexander, names her, her um, award-winning book, The New Jim Crow, in which she's articulating how mass incarceration builds upon and extends slavery, Jim Crow, ghettoization as a legalized form of discrimination and, and inequality today. And so in naming the new Jim Code, I wanted to bring to the fore the role of technology in um, oppressive regimes and in reinforcing inequity so that we begin to name the socio-technical system that's allowing old school forms of racism and in some cases newfangled kinds of discrimination to operate without uh, actually, actually operating in the background, shaping everything from our criminal justice to education to healthcare system, um, but but what, under the presumption that it's more neutral and objective than if there was a biased judge or or, or a racist police officer or a racist teacher. If an algorithm tells me to do it, then it, it's a kind of like an alibi. Well, this is objective. I, you know, this form of discrimination is encoded into the system. So by naming it, I think it's the first step to say we can begin to talk about it, so we can begin to change it and try to build different kinds of socio-technical systems that don't reinforce the status quo in this way. Fascinating. So one of the tools, or maybe a group of the tools that you use, you is a is a a methodology that you call race critical code studies. Yes. Tell us what that, how you understand that Absolutely. term. Absolutely. So it's a kind of interdisciplinary um, um, subfield within science and technology studies and critical race studies. So mm -hmm. it's a hybrid approach that's not simply concerned with technology's impact on society or the way that technology uh, reinforces certain forms of racism and inequality, but it's also looking at the way that technology is designed. Mm -hmm. And so not just the impact, but the inputs, and specifically how race and racism shape the inputs of technology. And so it's expanding the story that we tell about technology, so much of the even the humanistic discourse around it. Mm -hmm. um, often is framed in terms of a lag on the part of the humanities or a part, even on the part of policymakers or the law that's trying to catch up with technology. Mm -hmm. And in that framing, technology is moving ahead. It's driving and everyone else is sort of chasing, chasing behind technology. And so race crit critical code studies puts a pause on that narrative and says, let's back up because there's a whole social order that shapes what technologies are developed in the first place. Society precedes technology and we encode values and assumptions and, and ways of thinking and knowing into our technical system. So we're not simply trying to catch up to technology. The, the things that we take for granted about the social order are making some technologies appear inevitable and desirable and others unthinkable. And so it's foregrounding the existing social apparatus that produces technology and the, especially the role of racism in that apparatus so that in some ways it puts us on equal footing <laughs> with, with um, people who are doing the design of the hardware and the software to say, but people are designing social systems all around us that then become frozen um, in, our, in our technologies. And so um, it's about looking at the inputs and the racial inputs of technological design. Uh, one of the things, one of the many things in the book that was striking to me is this critique of the, the alleged 
uh, agency of technology as if it operates w on its own steam that the human there's no p nobody behind the curtain and you're yeah. you're really interested in what's going on behind the curtain and yeah. making all these things legible or visible that are typically invisible to yeah, us. Yeah, that's we, part of the power. I mean, in some ways we associate power with, uh, you know, the kind of caricature of power and authoritarianism as like a big, big bad boogeyman that we can point to, mm. uh, a big solid building, that's where the power emanates. But the diffuse kind of power, the invisible kind of power, the power that we can't name, we don't have language for, can actually be more harmful in part because we don't know where to look for it. Mm -hmm. We don't know where to attack or to refuse it. Mm -hmm. And so by naming it, the power of names, and partly where I start the book, is to say that that first step in being able to call something out as a, as a first step in engaging it and pushing back against it is really important so that making something visible is, is part of that process that I think the humanities have a huge role in. in. Um, why don't you, can you give me an example of one of these uh, invisible forms of a kind of the new Jim Code in operation? Yeah, absolutely. And so here, if you know, if the listeners here are many students and people, let's say, like looking for jobs, there's a lot of automated systems that purport to be able to judge who is a good job candidate or not. Um, and we have to think together about how that judgment is produced. If we fall back on our old logic that says, you know, this is an objective process, there's only one way to judge quality in a job candidate, we forget all of the forms of bias and inequality that have been built into the workplace and that are, you know, there's mounds of social science showing the way that discrimination operates in the workplace, even with laws that say we shouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. And so that history of discrimination becomes the starting point to teach algorithms and automated software how to judge future candidates for a workplace, right? The training data. And so we have to think about how making that visible, the forms of discrimination by race, sex, class, and all the other, um, are, are the inputs to systems that are now, and all that's hidden, and now all you get is someone working in an HR department that is you know, looking at a score that says, okay, you fit the profile of people who've done well here. No matter that the people who've been doing well in our company are majority men, majority white, majority from a certain pedigree of mm -hmm. kinds of schools, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But now you have a score that says, no, you, you know, you fit the profile of a successful, you know, candidate. So that's one of many, many different arenas in which code, in this case, uh, AI-powered hiring algorithms, mm -hmm are making important decisions that impact people's lives, but the social processes, the forms of discrimination that have existed that are input to help these systems make judgments are, are, beyond, repro are beyond reproach, or mm -hmm. we, we don't question it. And so whether it's in the context of hiring or healthcare, deciding you know, how, how to treat patients, or you know, a judge deciding who to let on, on parole or not, um, a teacher deciding which is a problem student mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. We have to think about what is the input to these systems and who is designing them with what assumptions and values when it comes to these predictions. You may, I mean, you, <clears throat> you alluded to how the book begins when you tell the story of this exercise you do with your students about names. Mm -hmm. And it carries over to the example you just gave because one of the inputs is May, the uh, AI makes judgments about a candidate based on their name. Yeah, and so, so even before all of this, the AI systems came in, we have 
audit studies in the social sciences that have shown that even though we have laws that say you don't discriminate by race, um, employers use names as a proxy, as a code, if you will, mm -hmm. to tell them something about the quality of that candidate. And so some years ago, uh, two economists from the University of Chicago did a study sending out thousands of resumes to employers that had put out ads in Chicago and Boston. And the, the resumes were the same, qualifications were the same, they just tweaked the names. Some of the resumes had names like Lakeisha and Jamal, right, black-sounding names. Some names like Emily and Greg, white-sounding names. Same qualifications. Sent them out and waited for the feedback. And shouldn't surprise most that the white-sounding names receive 50% more callbacks than the black-sounding names all other things being equal. The economists calculated that to mean that there was an assumption that these white candidates had eight additional years of experience on the job that they didn't actually have, but that's what the white name bought them. Hmm. And so that, that pattern held even for employers that were beholden to anti-discrimination policies, um, small firms, large companies. And so across the board, this form of discrimination where names were a proxy for race, they were the code that told people and that told it, okay, this is someone who's gonna work hard, that's gonna show up on time, who's a good fit for our company, which is another code word, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. versus someone who's not. And so now people will acknowledge that reality, but the interesting thing is that, our, that the, the solution to acknowledging that bias is often, if humans are so biased, let's let technology be the decider and make the judgment with that leap that somehow all of that human bias is not going to shape the design of these technologies. So, so much of what I'm describing as the new Jim Code doesn't come out of a kind of malicious intent to harm people. Mm -hmm. Much of it actually grows out of an acknowledgement of human action and bias, but then turning to technology as the neutral, innocent arbiter um, that will make decisions better than us, rather than thinking of ourselves as stewards of technology, as sort of giving birth to technologies that often just mirror the, the long-standing practices that we've engaged in. So, um, I'm thinking of, um, you mentioned the uh, AI, the ad for AI with Common. Yes. Uh, the rapper Common, and, yeah. and you know, one of the justifications for AI is, oh, the, just the sheer volume of data now is so massive, we can't possibly uh, cope with it ourselves. We yeah. need these tools to help us. Yeah. So, how does that magnitude of data yeah. contribute to new, uh, new forms of segregation? How does it? Yeah, and so part of the logic of that is that more is better. Um, and so whether whatever, whatever it is, more is better, even if that more is just more past practices of discrimination that are amplified, mm -hmm. they're amplified and so that you can discriminate, discriminate now through automated systems at a pace um, that you couldn't in the past. So if you had one kind of racist, let's say, CEO who only wanted people like him to work there, then it would affect a pool of people who are applying there. But you take those biases, you input it into systems that are in one, in one case being used by hundreds of employers around the world. Mm -hmm. um, uh, from Goldman Sachs to Vodafone to Atlanta Public Schools, the Red Sox, I could go on and on where now you amplify what one set of practices would affect one pool the bigness of the data actually makes the repercussions of that, that harmful action um, even bigger. And so we shouldn't associate more bigger, you know, with better. 
um, when it's based upon um, practices that have been harmful in the past. So how do how do tech people how do tech companies try to fix uh, when these technologies go wrong? What do they try to do? Yeah, I think that there's a number of approaches, both from within the tech industry and and people who are in collaboration and thinking through what to do in this moment. There's there's not a lot that I can point to with a kind of uh, firm, like, let's do it this way. But there's a number of approaches, one of which is a kind of using algorithms to audit for bias. Mm -hmm. And so rather than trying to make these consequential decisions about people's lives um, with this notion of technological neutrality, let's turn the algorithms back onto themselves to pick up on these patterns. And for me, that's one of the most um, sort of, I'm m most heartened by this idea that technology can be a mirror onto society. Mm. It can make us face certain things that we've been unwilling to do, let's say if it came through a more humanistic approach mm -hmm, or a more mm -hmm. qualitative approach. If someone said, you know what, um, you know, this is what happens to me on a routine basis, you know, X, Y, and Z, and we have all kinds of ways to dismiss that. But here you have, because of the sheer quantity of data, this large pattern in which certain segments of the society are being treated or cast or coded in certain ways, and it's coming through us through the lens of the algorithms mm. themselves, right? So the, 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 the technology becomes a mirror and makes us confront in a way that it's harder to dodge and say, well, no, that's just your personal impression. Mm -hmm. So it, it's making the patterns come alive in a way that I think um, now then the question is, once we see that and acknowledge it, how do we act on it? And so the caution is that we try to create simple technological fixes in response to what seems like a technological problem. But the whole argument of my, the book and, and where I'm coming from is that the, the social structure produces the technology that's now a mirror. So we need to wrestle with the fundamentals, not just try to create technology that helps us bypass the bias and kind of tweak the edges mm -hmm. rather than deal with the problems at a much more fundamental level. So you're talking now about tech justice. Yeah. So Let's start talking about that by um, telling me about the Just Data Lab. What yeah. is that and what does it do? The Just Data it? Lab was relatively new and it grows also out of this desire to move, in addition to critique, to have a creative, mm -hmm. constructive approach to the problem that I'm naming. And so it's collaborating with students of mine, with community organizations, with artists, to try to, first of all, explode the idea of what data and technology is, that it's not simply the purview of those who run a few big companies to define for us mm -hmm. what, it, what are the limits of these technologies. And so mm -hmm. one of the key sort of uh, parts of the Just Data Lab is to look to community approaches, people who may, on the one hand, may not seem like they're doing high-tech things, but have tools that work for communities to address things like healthcare. And I noted at the beginning, black midwives. And so some of it has to do with looking for um, interventions that are more community-based, not to come up with solutions just because we can, if there are already things that are working for people. Mm -hmm. And so it's really thinking through what my colleague at MIT, Sasha Costanza Schock, calls um, the design justice principles, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. for anyone listening, just go and look up design justice principles, one of which is that you collaborate with communities in the process 
of producing data and employing data, rather than data being a weapon that's used to, for example, predict the riskiness of individuals or communities. In that lens, data is being used against people, mm -hmm. deciding really consequential things about their lives in which they have no say. They, are the, they become the objects of data and technology rather than the subjects and the protagonists. So Just Data Lab is as much about the process of the production and design of these collaborations as it is with the final product. So you, you speak in the book about the intersections between the projects that you're undertaking, the work you do, and the, the so-called prison industrial complex, and you, you interrogate that category, that term a yeah. bit too. Say a little bit about that aspect. Yeah, and so and this is also where the idea of abolitionist tools comes from. Yeah. So again, in conversation with, with Michelle Alexander and the way that technology extends forms of social control and racial control, the key is that it exceeds the arena of prisons and policing where the logics and the tools that are used in that arena are penetrating almost every other facet of life in terms of the logic of racial control, the, the quantification of risk. So it's trying to get us to think about an expanded notion of what the carceral is mm -hmm. as, as that which contains people based on their social grouping. And it's not simply wielded by those who are police or, or judges, that which is the carceral system. And so if that is the case, if there's this expanded notion of carcerality that technology is complicit in producing, the question is, can we produce technologies that run against that, that mm -hmm. are abolitionist in nature? And by abolitionist, it's not simply about bringing an end to that, the carceral approach, but it's what else do we grow in its place? Um, the etymology of the word is both to destroy and to grow. So it's trying to imagine and conceive alternative ways of engaging with technology from a community-based approach as stewards and not this way in which a kind of techno-determinism in which we're just the subjects of technology. The robots are either going to slay us or save us, but it's really this third way in which we are the protagonists and the stewards, and we in the most expansive sense, sense not simply this kind of elite group of people who have now, who c control the design of mm -hmm. technology. I admire your insistence on the importance of our agency. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we just have a few minutes left. Yeah. Um, among the many things that you have accomplished and the many things you do, you are also an award-winning teacher. And I'm sure anyone watching the, the interview can see why. Um, on your website, you state that you teach like your life depends on it. Mm -hmm. Tell us why. Yeah. So. Um I've been a teacher since I was five, and so I didn't have many friends, if you can imagine. <laughs> I used to gather my friends around my, on my grandma's big porch in LA. She had that faux grass carpet on the porch, and I'd have a little chalkboard and hand out math problems, and I had like one and a half friends. Um, but so for me, the reason, teaching for me is the ground zero. It's, it's where we seed the ideas that are gonna materialize in our social and material world down the line. And so if we want to imagine changing anything down the line, the classroom, not just the traditional classroom, but any kind of pedagogical exchange is where we see the ideas, the imagination, the methods that are going to take fruit. And so for me, when I think as a parent also, I have two teenage sons, when I say that teaching, I teach like my life depends on it, I'm trying to 
to transform a world that they will have to inhabit long after I'm gone. And so it's not just my life depends on it. The people I love, their lives depend on really a radical rethinking of what we take for granted in terms of social inequality, in terms of racism, sexism, and how we can do that in the classroom. The first step is to question, to question what is natural, right? And so. Uh, so long as we just take things for granted and, and accept a kind of inevitability, whether it's around inevitability around technology or inevitability around our social structure, we've already ceded the ground to those who are benefiting from the status quo. And so the, together we can begin to question it. It's a very dangerous thing to do. People don't want us to be able to question that inevitability because then we start to act on that. Well, on that very um, inspiring note, I want to thank you, Ruha Benjamin, for speaking with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, and thank you for your incisive questions. Oh, it's a total <laughs> pleasure. I've been speaking with Ruha Benjamin, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. She gave a talk titled Beyond Buzzwords, Reimagining the Default Settings of Technology and Society on February 4th, 2020 as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2019-2020 Cressman Lecturer. Her talk was part of the Convergence, Intersections Between the Sciences and Humanities series. Thanks so much for watching.